Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Michael Kasdan. Mike is an intellectual property attorney and partner with Wigan and Dana. Mike focuses on all aspects of intellectual property law, providing his clients with full-service IP experience that ranges from patent, trademark, copyright, and trade secret litigation to IP-related transactions, including licensing and monetization to help companies to protect and reap maximum value from their own innovations and brands. Mike also advises clients on strategic patent and trademark prosecution and portfolio development, as well as trade secret portfolio development and protection and provides opinions and analysis on various issues, including patent and trademark infringement, validity, and enforceability. Mike also drafts, negotiates, and advises clients on a range of agreements with IP-related aspects, including employment agreements, third-party contractor agreements, supply agreements, and software licenses and cross-licenses. As a member of his firm's Inclusive Diversity and Equity Committee, Mike has been the keynote speaker at conferences addressing topics such as diversity and mentorship. Mike is also a passionate advocate for mental health and wellness in the legal profession and the world at large, and is the founder and chief enthusiasm officer of Lawyering While Human and serves on the communications committee of the Institute for Wellbeing and Law. Mike is also the director of special projects for the Good Men Project, also known as GMP. Mike has held a number of leadership roles at GMP over time, including senior sports editor, lead editor, and executive editor. Mike has helped to develop the GMP's social interest groups and has also helped to develop diversity and inclusion workshops focused on allyship for law firms, law schools, and corporations. And with that extremely impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here. Well, thank you so much again, Mike, for taking part in the podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. So, Mike, I generally like to start the podcast off by asking my guests about their career journey. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in intellectual property law and at Wigan? Sure, sure. Happy to do that. I feel really lucky that by this point, you know, middle life, I guess, um, I've done a little bit of everything. Um, so I've, I've worked at big firms and small firms and, and uh, I think, you know, the right size firm, Wigan and Dana, where I work right now. Uh, and I've clerked and I've worked in-house a little bit. Um, but I got into intellectual property. I started, I went to college not really knowing uh, what I wanted to do and uh, started off arts and sciences. Uh, my dad was a PhD physicist who made a mid-career switch to IP law. And so that provided me with the opportunity to kind of take a peek at that work and see what it was all about. Uh, he had been a little frustrated as a research scientist going really deep in one area. And I think he was frustrated with certain projects getting funded and probably details that I wasn't privy to as a 10 year old. But, um, you know, what he liked about IP law was how varied it was and, you know, getting getting to learn a lot about a lot of different technologies or say a little bit or enough about a lot of different technologies. Um, so I had the opportunity to actually work as a paralegal during the summer. Uh, at the firm he worked at, and they, and because I was technical, uh, I was electrical engineering. Uh, I, I got to do some technical stuff, and, and I thought it was really fun. Um, so, so I, I planned to go to law school and go into IP. Uh, I spent the first few years first uh, as a sort of software consultant, technology consultant at Accenture. At the time, it was Anderson Consulting down in Philadelphia, and then I went to law school at NYU. Really, you know, got super into IP law. You know, hold the whole dorky thing. You know. 
president of the IP and Entertainment Law Society and really wanted to clerk for a judge that did a lot of uh, patent cases. And so I, I clerked in Delaware for uh, for Judge McKelvey during his last year on the bench. Um, and my co-clerk didn't like patent cases and I did. So I got all the patent cases. And then when I started my, my law career after that year, uh, I started at Kirkland and Ellis in New York uh, in their IP litigation group. And I was there for a few years. And then I actually uh, moved to Amster, Rothstein and Ebenstein, which is an IP boutique where my father was working. Oh, wow. Um, and so, yeah. So and I, it's funny, I kind of knew a lot of the partners from when I was a little kid, but uh, they had a lot of really good clients and uh, a little bit of a better balance. Um and uh, so we got to work together uh, and I got to do a lot of work for a lot of clients, but a lot of work for Panasonic. And I spent two years uh, uh, actually abroad working in-house at Panasonic's licensing department, which for me was a really eye-opening experience because to that date, I'd only done litigation and I thought that that's kind of all there was. Um, so that really opened my eyes up to the, this, this world of licensing. Uh, and I got to develop my skills there. And, and it, it was a really great experience being abroad. And uh, when I came back, uh, uh, I was a partner at Amster. And then uh, in 2014, my father, uh, another partner of mine, and uh, myself went over uh, to uh, start the IP licensing and litigation practice at Wigan. And that's kind of where we are now. And I also had the opportunity when I came back from Japan, uh, a few years later, developed a, a, a licensing course that I teach uh, at NYU Law School. And I've been doing that for about eight years. Oh, that's an incredible journey. And and how neat that you got the chance to work with your father. That's that's really amazing. So um, you don't hear about that too often in IP law. So that I'm sure it's been really a, a special experience for both of you. It has been. You know, we're, we're very different. I think uh, we complement each other pretty well. He's really, really smart and very technical and very detailed. And sometimes I tend to run too fast. And so, you know, it works together. You know, we, we kind of move fast and can be detailed. And uh, it, it has been fun. I was a little worried about it when I went over. Uh, that was sort of the one concern. But, you know, uh, it, it's been a really great experience. Now, as we've just been talking, um, your day job is uh, intellectual property law, but I also know you have a wide variety of interests and avocations, and I know that you're extremely passionate about a number of things, particularly education, entrepreneurship, and technology. How did you end up becoming so passionate about these three topics? Uh, you know, that's a great question, and I don't really know. I feel like uh, some of it was just um, luck and the people I met. I, mean, I have to say that, especially when I when I look at myself as compared to my own children now, who are you know my son's a junior uh, at Syracuse and my daughter is going to be starting at UConn, so they're you know both sort of college age. Um, they're much more well rounded than I was. Like I really had no idea. I didn't know about social justice. I didn't know anything about politics really. Um, I you know I, I definitely didn't talk think about mental health and um, and so I feel like. I kind of came to the game late learning those things. Um, and the place where I learned most of that was was uh, was the Goodman Project, which uh, has been a big, uh, you know, side passion project of mine for for over 10 years now. And I'm happy to talk more about it. But, yeah, I mean, I think I've always loved teaching and learning. And so to be able to teach is really it's really cool. And, you know, I, I get to work with, uh, you know, the entrepreneurship part, I think, also was just lucky when I was at NYU. There was a program that was student developed. There was a joint uh, joint program between the NYU and Columbia Law and Business Schools. It was called uh, Insight. Uh, it was basically like a little clinic that was student run, and uh, and I was an Insight fellow. Um, you know, and I think basically I was an Insight fellow just because I was interested in it and said yes. Um, I think now if you look at like the Insight fellows, like you know they've all like run small countries and they're super impressive. Like I was just right place, right time, and it was really fun. Kind of uh, you know I think. We're Working with startups is really constructive. Um, as you know, litigation can be very adversarial, of course. Um, but you know, building something and helping people strategize when resources are scarce in terms of their time and, of course, their money. Like that's it's it's a, it's a lot of fun. It's a very different kind of activity. So I've always, since that time, tried to work with startup companies. Um, it's it's one of the reasons that I actually left uh, Amster and came to Wigan is because uh, you know 
Amster is an IP boutique, and I really, really liked working with startups. Um, and but I, I could only kind of do patent and trademark work for them, and not the you know, can you help us form an entity? Can you you know the basic startup type agreements, getting funding, all those issues. So to be able to partner with our uh, early stage group here and still do that work uh, has been really fun. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a little bit about that. I guess luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you definitely have to have a little bit of luck in life for sure. So I know you're also extremely passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that, I think, brings us back to something you just mentioned, which is the Good Men Project. And you're the director for the Good Men Project. Uh, For those of our listeners who may not be familiar with the Good Men Project, can you tell us more about it and what it's trying to achieve? Yeah, no, absolutely. So diversity, equity, inclusion is a really fundamental interest of mine. Um, And the the way it's developed is kind of interesting because, you know, like I said, I was a little bit late to the game, thinking a little naive, (laughs) kind of thinking about the world and these issues. Uh, Like, I honestly remember when Ferguson happened, even after being involved in these issues, that was, you know, that wasn't terribly a long time ago. that shocked me. I was like, wow, I thought we were way further along in terms of racism and we're just not. Um, and so um, I got involved in the Good Men Project um, in, you know, after I returned. For, so in 2011, 2012, um, I wrote an article about mental health uh, at the time anonymously. And I was urged to publish it by a really good friend of mine who thought it could really help other people. But I was scared to put it out there and attach my name to it. So, uh, you know, she said, hey, I know I know this website called The Good Men Project, and maybe they would publish it anonymously. And so they did that, and it was great. And, uh, you know, through that, I met the publisher of The Good Men Project, Lisa Hickey, uh, and I met, uh, you know, some great writers on topics like masculinity and gender uh, and, you know, and, and communication and relationships, uh, Mark Green. Um, and they were all in New York at the time, and, you know, we met once, and uh, at the time, I was coaching my son's little league baseball team, highly competitive summer league, not just rec. Um, and uh, and I had some thoughts about that great experience, but also like you know, the summer it was like parents have to relax a little bit. Um, that was kind of the theme. Uh, and then I was also playing pickup basketball with you know a group of guys at my temple. You know, not like elite ball, but you know we set good screens and could hit the jump shot. And <laughs> it was it was it was important like relationship wise for me, like as a middle-aged guy to like have this set of people. Um, so I thought it'd be interesting to write about those two things. And I asked Lisa if I could write and she said, yeah, we have the sports section. Um, you know, you can come in and write. Um, and we have these two guys that, that are running it and it'd be an easy list. We know, we know you're a lawyer, but if you want to write the little league thing and the, <laughs> the basketball thing, like we'll throw it up there on the website. And, uh, and so I did. And then two weeks later, those two guys left and I became the senior sports editor. Um, so that was my first um, entree into the Goodman project. Um, the Goodman project is a media company it's a it's a website but it's 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 more than that because they also do a lot of interactive programs it was uh it was actually started by uh, a man named tom matlack who's who's a yale grad and uh in his mid-20s and uh found that he didn't really understand what it was what it meant to be good or what it meant to be a man. Uh, and he set out to write a book to explore those issues by talking to a lot of different people, um, people from different backgrounds, uh, different ages, different you know ethnic groups. Um, and he wrote a book called The Good Men Project. Um, I just looked at it over there on my shelf. And he hired uh, Lisa Hickey to do the advertising for the book, the marketing. And she created a website and a Facebook page. And you know what they found was they were having really great conversations on the website. Um, and so they pivoted to create this media company. Um, and the tagline for uh, the Goodman Project is the conversation no one else is having because uh, when it was founded back in uh, you know, 2009, 2010, uh, it was really intended to be a place uh, where people can come in an inclusive way uh, and talk about you know, sort of the changing issues of gender and masculinity. And, you know, I found by writing for them and being in leadership for them over years and by learning a lot that these issues, there are a lot of connected issues. Uh, I think Lisa Lisa's like a master dot connector. Um, so, you know, there's so many issues in our society um, that connect to these issues of sex and gender, uh, you know, racism, sexism, you know, LGBTQ issues of discrimination, mental health, gun violence, um, you know, relationships. Um, and so it's a pretty broad conversation. And 
what I really love about the Goodman Project is that it's interactive. Um, so every Friday there's a call with the publisher that anyone can join, and Lisa runs that. And one of the programs that I developed uh, was called the Social Interest Group Program. Um, and I used to lead one on men's mental health, but now every every night of the week there's a there's a standing call. It's kind of like a podcast like this, but with more people in it and a and sort of moderated conversation. Uh, there's one, you know, so now you know on Mondays it's it's uh, you talk about anti-racism. There's an anti-sexism group. Uh, right now, there's a there's an environment and climate change group, um, and you know over time there have been different ones of those. But um, so there's really a community that has a conversation, and uh, I think unlike some other sort of you know men's group pages, uh, it, it's really sort of big tent masculinity. So readership is like 55, 45 men and women. So because you know if you're not talking to women about these issues. You know, you're not you're you're basically just talking to yourself and not really making progress. So um, and then, you know, what, what's interesting about, you know, my experience with the Goodman Project is that when I started doing this and, and I was like, wow, this is really interesting. These are really different conversations and issues that I'm thinking about, um, you know, from my patent law day job. Um, but as a younger associate, I was really um, kind of shy about telling people in my work life that I was doing this uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I thought it was like, you know, these are kind of political, these are social issues. We don't talk about those at work, you know, work we talk about innovation and, you know, patent eligibility and, you know, those things. And, uh, and so I was quite, and I also thought, you know, as a junior lawyer, like, like if someone sees all these articles I'm writing, they're going to think like, why isn't he in there billing more hours? Um, and, you know, even though I was doing it, you know, on my own personal time at night and on the weekends. Um, so, but what happened, you know, you you started this question asking about diversity, inclusion and equity. And I never really connected it to that until more recently, because what happened, you know, a few years ago, uh, you know, you know, in the summer in, in Minnesota, um, you know, that changed the working world, I think, a lot. I think you got a lot of um, corporations and law firms to uh, have these conversations in the workplace, you know, even though, you know, DEI has been around a long time. Uh, but I think it really changed. And at that point, I was like, wow, I've been having these conversations, just not here. Um, so, you know, at Wigan and Dana, like I led a, a racial justice book and movie club. Um, I'm on our committee uh, called the Wigan Opportunity Initiative, where uh, we're do we pledged to do in our, in our more than on pace to do $10 million of uh, free legal work for minority-owned businesses over 10 years. Um, and uh, it's a great program. I, mean, I have so much fun working on it. And so I, so that was the first time where I sort of like brought these issues to work. Um, and then the last thing I'll just say is that in terms of interactivity, the other thing we realized that the Goodman Project is that you know, the conversation that no one else was having, that we were having, um, is really the conversation about diversity, equity, inclusion of the workplace and male allyship um, and why these things are really important for everyone to understand, um, you know, not just women and black and brown people and why being able to navigate these issues is really like a leadership competency. And so we also developed uh, another interactive program and that's our diversity, equity, inclusion, um, like training and workshops uh, that we're giving at, at law schools and law firms and, and hopefully at corporations. We, we're in, in conversation with some of them too. I just happen to know a lot of lawyers, um, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but that's been a really, really exciting um, program to roll out because it's really, um, at least for me, it's like completing like the integrated self of Mike. But more importantly, like I think that that it's a really great conversation that 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 is important, you know, in the workplace and certainly in this patent technology space. Uh, I think it is. Yeah. And speaking of those programs that you developed on diversity and inclusion, these workshops, um, what led you to develop those and and how would you say they're different than some other programs that might be out there? Yeah. So, I mean, what, what really led us to develop them is uh, I think it was sort of a natural evolution and extension of what we were doing because, um, you know, through the publisher calls, through the media site and writing articles and having a community that would interact on, on social media, but also on the phone and in podcasts, um, we're talking about these issues all the time, um, you know, how to navigate difficult issues, allyship, like, you know, white fragility, you know, how to navigate, you know, at work when someone's acting, you know, as a misogynist and what do you say and what can you say? Um, and so I think as the world changed a little bit and and as diversity inclusion and, and ESG and sort of mental health is another area that I think tags along with these, as those became more um, 
you know, workplace centric conversations, or at least the workplace became an allowable place to talk about those issues. Um, and not only allowable, but important. Cause I think, you know, like, you know, we met, um, in connection, you know, with autumn and, and tech transfer and, you know, the diversity work. And, and it's important because right now, like if we want to be diverse, we need a pipeline. We need, we need, you know, it's a, it's a big institutional problem, um, that will, if we do it right, like it will improve us as lawyers, improve us as innovators. Um, but it's a, it's a big end to end problem. And so what we realized is that, um, you know, we've been having this conversation and kind of leading this conversation and and learning how to navigate these difficult issues and learning how to talk to men about these issues um, and the pushback you get and the things that, that resonate and the things that don't um, and learning how to lead, you know, healthy conversations about this um, and deal with, you know, the pushback that you inevitably get. Um, and so, you know, as I got more involved in diversity and inclusion at my firm and sort of looked out at what was happening in the world, um, you know, we said, well, why don't we, you know, everything we've been talking about for the entire time of the Goodman Project, it is diversity, equity, and inclusion. We just haven't been calling it that. Um, so it makes sense. And, you know, we, we're, we're, a bunch of us have been speaking, you know, we're speaking at colleges, speaking at schools, um, you know, speaking at, at, at doing kind of one-off talks at, at corporations or law firms. And so we just thought uh, the time Time is right to to bring um, this in a more sort of formal, organized way to to the market. Um, and you know, I talked to you know, there are obviously a lot of people out there doing diversity, equity, and inclusion, and have businesses and look to be speakers and be hired. And um, so we we did a lot of thinking about you know what differentiated us. Um, and I, I talked to a lot of people about that. And I think really what differentiates us, um, I think, is the ability to connect dots across all these issues, um, but also the fact that that we've been dealing with with men and a lot of times white men um, and this allyship piece. And so allyship is something I've been focused on. I've written a couple articles about it. It's a simple word, but um, it, to do it right requires kind of balancing two uh, two, two, two issues that are very much intention, right? One is to not be vocal, to not step up and lead, to actually let people with lived experience drive the conversation. But then at the same time, you want to use your power to elevate and amplify. And, you know, there are people that listen to to me because I'm a white man more so than the same thing said by, by someone who's not. So it, it, it's a hard thing to navigate. And it's, it's an issue. And I think a lot of people are, are sort of afraid. And then I think, you know, there's also this pushback where if you're busy and you have kids and, you know, you have life, we all do, right? We have work obligations, we have home obligations, we're running around. Um, and, and someone says, hey, are you going to that diversity meeting? I think a lot of white men are like, oh, like, that's not my thing, right? I'm, I'm you know, that that's someone else's thing. Um, so, so, explaining why it's actually or important to you, why it should be your thing. Um, I think those are those three things are things that we can really, really, really do well because we've been doing it for a long time. Now, Mike, I want to go back to something you mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago, and that was pipeline. Um, we're both um, patent attorneys and obviously have a technical background in STEM. Um, what can we do to increase the number of underrepresented individuals in STEM and then ultimately, hopefully, patent law? Yeah, so that's like a huge, it's a huge question, huge, right? Huge, huge. I don't throw small questions on this podcast, <laughs> just huge ones. I mean, we may as well hit the big ones. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's like I said, like, so institutional change of that magnitude. Um, I think it's important to be both to recognize that it's, institutional for a reason, um, right? So so there's a certain intractability in dealing with these issues that you come up against. Um, so I think it's really important to have both long-term um, pieces to it and short-term pieces to it. Um, and for example, you know, the long-term piece, like there's, there's pieces in education that are critically important. Um, so for example, like I was um, the, the original founding member of the New York IP Alliance. And when we all talked about um, getting to, and, and that's a, an organization that's like kind of a hub for not just lawyers, but, you know, entrepreneurs and technologists and, you know, government folks um, and funders and, you know, trying to really talk to all the people involved. And, and a lot of people on that call were like, education is where we should focus on. Like, we've got to, we got to focus on it. And, and 
and it's in, and you know these issues of you know you know women you know not pursuing science or you know or 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 the black community you know not being invested in and following that path it starts really really young um so so there has to be a piece that addresses it really young and i used to be on the board of an organization called city science that was a stem education organization that basically looked at that issue and tried to sort of catch kids as they were falling off um by by sort of changing the way you teach and being more location based and you know customizing things and making it interesting and part of the problem is that teachers um, aren't equipped teachers at like seventh grade, uh, which is one of those fallout points. Like they're not really equipped to teach science. They're a lot of times generalists and they're like, oh, and also teach physics. Right. And uh, and so I think part of it is education. Right. That's really unsatisfying. We always say like, oh, we have to do better in education. Um, but but I think it has to be a component that, that we invest in and focus on. Uh, and and in particular, like, you know, how we're providing opportunities um, to to minorities who didn't previously have them. And there are a lot of great programs like that I've learned of. Um, I wish there were like, you know, like a sort of like Justice League that like joined all these things and people together. And maybe there will be. But um, like there's a great program at a local law school where, you know, where where the you know, they bring in certain students and like they work at like a corporation in their IP department or they have experiences. Like, so I think seeing other people who look like you doing things, that, you know, makes that possible. Having those experience, being exposed to things. So that, so those are all very long term, but super duper important things. And, and I think the cultural change aspect, like, you know, it's all part of this issue we have in addressing racism and sexism in society that, you know, we're swimming in this culture that are, that's sending these messages um like you know it's funny i was just talking with a friend the other day and uh right i i was a i was a high school in the 90s kid and someone posted an article about mike tyson's punch out the uh the nintendo game and uh and i was looking at all the characters like every boxer in there like each one is like a hideous stereotype of like gay people it's like um uh, and you don't even think about it because it's just you're just swimming in it and so so that's the big culture change piece of it and that's the part that i think that's the conversation we've been having at the Goodman Project, that long-term conversation that's important. But I think it's also really important to have, you know, short-term focus because you can't just say like, oh, you know, do a better job in education and we'll, we'll get there eventually. Um, and I think short-term programs uh, like have to focus on um, like ac identifying like actual human being leaders um, who will who who have buy-in and will champion these issues within organizations um, or else you end up just, you know, because systemic issues are made up of people. Um, and, you know, a lot of times, you know, you see it in, in all organizations, you know, you you say like, you know, well, it's our policy to, you know, to, to, to look and to make sure we're hiring like a diverse candidate, but then like, oh, like, you know, you get a lateral and like there's a need and it's not. I've heard that so many times. Yeah. So, you know, and there can be one else, but there has to be someone who has power who's making those decisions and leading that. Um, so maybe that's all I'll say about it at this point. But yeah, it's a it's a huge question. <laughs> it's absolutely huge, and and there's also a gender gap as well. You you alluded to exactly. it in in STEM and patent law, and and in fact, I know you're aware of an article recently in Law 360 that just came out uh, earlier this month on April 19th, and. I think what was really disturbing to me was that article starts off talking about Edith Griswold, who in 1897 was the first woman admitted to the USPTO, and she was one of 26 patent lawyers at the time. So she actually made up 3.8% of uh, women in IP at that time. And then we fast forward ahead 100, 125 years later, and women are just 17% of IP patent attorneys now. And so the stats aren't really great. And and um, yeah, we, that's another area that obviously needs um, a lot of help as well. Yeah, no, for sure. There's a, there's a huge gender gap. And, and, you know, I think the other issue, which is another big issue while we're at it, um, that, that you encounter, um, and I call it like zero-sum thinking. Um, and I think we see this in leadership all over the, the, the place. And I think it's just bad leadership. And I hate bad leadership. <laughs> um, but I think exactly. people... 
uh, certain people tend to think that when someone else gets something, they lose something. Um, so if, you know, if we're hiring more diverse candidates like me like, as a white person, like I'm, you know, my, my opportunities are reduced. Or, you know, if we're, you know, going to make two female partners and I'm a male partner, I'm losing. And and the problem with that is like in the short term, that might be true. <laughs> uh, you know, there, there is some 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 truth to it. In the, in the short term, like there might be a specific opportunity that you might, you know, not get. But I, I think it also presumes a lot about it. There are a lot of qualified people who are smart and can do things. And I think, you know, if we have a workplace, you know, both of us are really focused on innovation in all sorts of ways. Um, and if we have a patent system where you know, um, where a huge percentage of society is just not included, like we're missing all sorts of innovation. It's terrible for the economy. And and so we have to be able to sort of think, think about it, you know, in a non-zero sum way, like we're going to be better and stronger. And there's all sorts of, you know, research and people way smarter than I am and consultants that have studied that show that, you know, businesses that are diverse and inclusive, like they perform better. They have a better economic impact, yeah. Better economically. So it's not just like, let's be nice um, or let's address this long time wrong because it's the moral thing to do, I think. Um, but I think, you know, it's intractable for a reason, um, like I said. Um, so you have to have leaders and you have to create incentives um, that can get you past some of that sh or uh, get you past that short term, um, you know, sort of, myopic uh, pushback. Yeah, absolutely. So Mike, switching gears, I wanted to ask you about one of your recent avocations, which focuses on mental health, wellness, and authentic leadership in the legal profession. And you call this lawyering while human. Um, and I know you focus um, on mental health as part of this lawyering while human. And I'm curious, um, because generally as a society, we don't like to talk about mental health in our personal lives, let alone at work. And, you know, I think you and I both know as, as IP attorneys, law firms generally, you know, maybe they're not the most sympathetic or, you know, lawyers aren't the most understanding bunch. And when it comes to mental health, anxiety and work-life balance, that's something we generally don't want to talk a whole lot about. Given that, um, can you tell us a little bit about what led to your decision to speak out on mental health issues and, and actually what some of the reactions of your coworkers were when you did speak out on mental health issues? Yeah, sure. I, I think it's really an important conversation that we need to have. Uh, again, I'll, I'll, I'll point to that younger generation as the ones who we should be listening to and following. Um, and I think this is another issue uh, where it's not just don't just do it because it's nice or moral or the right thing to do, although those are all wonderful reasons to do it and enough for me, frankly, um, but do it because it actually makes better economic and business sense. Um, so uh, it's interesting. Luring while human, uh, the name uh, I'd kind of forgotten about because, uh, but in 2016, this is one of these other areas where I was doing Good Men Project stuff, but kind of had it separate from my work life, um, where it was almost the first time that the two were bridged. So I had this friend um, who I used to uh, see at IP conferences, and we used to talk about, you know, privacy and patent stuff. Um, and uh and he's a really nice guy. And, and I got to know him pretty well. And, you know, he found all my Goodman Project stuff, right? Or we talked about that stuff. And he said uh, he was kind of one of the few people in the IP law circle that, you know, we, we would talk about those issues together uh, in a deep way. And he was connected to a conference in 2016. It was like a, a New York in-house council uh, bar type conference. And uh, he was one of the speakers. And they lost their kickoff speaker um, that was supposed to kick off the conference. It was a conference on innovation and IP. Um, and uh, and he contacted me. He was in New York and I was in New York. And he said, I think I might be able to get you in as this like keynote speaker like to kick off the conference. He said, I think it'd be really cool if you just talked about all that Goodman Project stuff, um, even though it's a bunch of IP lawyers. Um, and I said, I think I could do that. Like, that'd be kind of fun. Um, I just turned like 40 years old and I, I had like I put together this pro this, this presentation presentation that was kind of like, you know, observations of like a 40 year old lawyer on like, you know, <laughs> life and law or something like that. Uh, and I called it lawyering while human because a lot of what I talked about, it was a very simple presentation. It was like eight slides um, with like one picture on each. But I talked about, um, you know, bringing your passions to work, like not hiding who you are, because by that point, I realized like being at the Goodman Project, like made me a better lawyer, maybe a better writer, maybe a better speaker. Uh, 
clients and colleagues like to talk about actual life issues and not just patent law. Um, so I think it was helpful in a lot of ways. And so by that point, I was I, I was saying, you know, you shouldn't hide who you are like that. That's, you know, back to diversity. Like that's kind of that those are our superpowers. That's what makes us unique and, and can create value. And so that was one of my themes. Another one of my themes was, was you know, dealing with mental health and wellness in a real way. Um, another was diversity, equity, inclusion. Uh, another was pursuing your passion projects, you know, passionately um, and, you know, outside interest. Like I had an outside interest in privacy. Uh, I had like written about it in law school and when Facebook came out, I had a couple articles, but I never really practiced in that area. And I kept on sort of doing stuff in it and writing about it and talking to smart people about it. Um, and now I do privacy stuff kind of as a, as a side, you know. IP adjacent kind of thing for work. So, you know, I, I talked about all that stuff and uh, I've kind of forgotten about that lawyering while human speech until uh, last year. Um, I kind of lost all of my, I had a hard drive crash um, and I tried to recover all my documents. It was a lot of stuff and it was terrible. Um, and one of the things I found was that little presentation. And, you know, last year um, I was thinking a lot, uh, I'd gone through some, some mental health stuff myself. Um, I have had, you know, depression that's kind of uh, not present for years and years at a time, but but it happened for the first time when I was 35, when I was dealing with just, you know, like like I think we all know from the past year, like a mix of like real world personal life and work stressors, you know, can come together and kind of exceed our bandwidth. I think we're all suffering from it after, quite honestly, after the pandemic so in the too. last two years. Yeah, and I think that experience, that like collective traumatic experience actually created more of a space for this mental health conversation. And especially with a lot of people like reframing and reprioritizing the way they're thinking about work and life and values and, you know, this whole like great resignation. And I, I think it, it, it's a time to, to, to be talking about these issues and my own experience, you know, having gone through this sort of periodic but acute depression, um, you know, and not really talked about it at work, but, you know, written about it at the Goodman Project and led men's groups and slowly over time, like being more becoming more comfortable talking about it, um, because every time I've talked about it, frankly, like it's been a positive reaction. It's always been like an empathetic one. It's always been like, oh, my God, like, you know, me too. Or And, and you know, the, 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 the statistics, you know, in law are in a word bad. Right. It's like one in one in three people depressed. But I mean, they're terrible. Not only that, but. Um, you know, nine out of 10 people are dealing with it in some way, whether it's them, themselves, a family member, a friend. Um, so we better learn how to navigate this stuff. And it doesn't just disappear. Uh, you know, I don't know if you watch Severance, that, that very scary show on Apple TV about severing your work brain, and your home brain. But, you know, you don't just like show up at work and then like you've left all this stuff behind. It's 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 just life. So, you know, we have to deal with this in the workplace. And, you know, the, the it's another and, and I also think about sort of the, the, you know, positive aspects of mental health. Um, you know, mental health uh, is not just the absence of mental illness. It's actually thriving and being productive and being happy and feeling exactly. like you matter. Right. And all those things, it makes you better at your job. Like if you're happier, if your brain is functioning well, like you're more creative, you're more energetic. And Passionate. so I really think it's, yeah, exactly. So I think it's right. And passion drives things. Passion drives innovation. And and so does a creative, well-functioning brain. And so I think, you know, all these these issues are important to talk about in the workplace, not just to deal with like acute or, or clinical issues, but like, you know, how do we make sure that we can navigate stress? How do we make sure that our brains are functioning optimally? And like, you know, like you said, like we all navigating this work from home thing where there's no boundaries, like taking breaks and, you know, like all these, these, these simple things, like, you know, I say mindfulness and I understand when I say mindfulness or self-care that like 85% of male listeners just turn the podcast off. Um, but I'm not talking about like crossing your legs and, you know, chanting ohm. Like I'm talking about like taking a space, like going out, like letting your brain like relax. And there's, and there's actual science. Like there's a course at Yale that I'm taking online called the science of happiness. It's the most popular course in the history of Yale. Um, and, and there's science that shows that you're, you are actually more creative, uh, when, when you do do these things, these techniques and, so, so I think it's it's really important that we all understand how to 
how to navigate, you know, these issues. Um, and I think we need to sort of integrate it. And, you know, this conversation that we're all kind of afraid to have, you know, to go out there and have it is exciting. So, so lawyering, lawyering while human is my project that focuses in this area. Um, and, and right now it's frankly just me. Um, you know, my, my brother's girlfriend's mom said, Hey, like, do you, do you want me to make you a logo? I love making logos. And I was like, sure. And she made me a logo. And so it looks real. Um, and, it, and I'm out there talking about it and I'm on socials with it. And I was sharing sort of content about leadership and about mental health, um, you know, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and, um, and sharing that kind of content as myself on LinkedIn, um, which I never used to do before. Um, but I think it's important, you know, it's important to talk to, to young lawyers, uh, law schools are looking at this. Um, in terms of, you know, either the student life side or, or also integrating it into four credit courses, because, uh, you know, like diversity being a leadership competency, like I think this is actually a key piece of, you know, personal and professional development. Um, we will be better lawyers. Uh, you know, I just finished writing an article that I hope to publish, uh, you know, in, in the coming months that's that talks about the business case for this. Because, you know, like with diversity, like you're going to get pushback. You're going to get people saying like, oh, like they're just weak and lazy. Um, but I actually think that's lazy thinking to call it that because, you know, you have to have a sustainable workplace. Uh, otherwise, people are going to leave and they're going to do a less good job. Um, so I, I think it's it's a we're at this point, this sort of inflection point. Um, and I think, you know, you know, I feel lucky that that like title that like lowering while human seems to be like resonating with people. Um, and I have to say, like, you know, this this year, um, these past few months, I've connected with a lot of people um, doing a lot of really, really great work in the area. And I think it's really important to integrate into our workplaces because, you know, the term work life balance uh, in some sense is, you know, it's a misnomer. Like there's just one me, there's just one Mike, like, you know, I'm the same, whether I'm sitting here in my dining room. Oh, and by the way, I also sit here in my dining room. This is my office. So, you know, we got to do it right. And it's going to help us, you know, at home and at work. And it's not inconsistent with being profitable and being good. And, you know, this aspect of weakness, I think also, and this is an example of the intersection of all these issues. I talked about dot connecting, but like, the same issues you see repeating in all these fields. So you will get pushback. Like you will, for example, I saw on LinkedIn because I now talk about these things. Um, there was a female lawyer who on LinkedIn shared uh, an instance where she was harassed or someone said of something very inappropriate. Um, and, and there were a bunch of comments, you know, from white male lawyers who, who I looked them up, held pretty prominent positions in their firms and in the bar saying, why are you sharing this on LinkedIn? This yeah. isn't Facebook. Yeah. Why are you exactly. talking about it? And, and the other comment that, that I found really upsetting was you have to have a thicker skin. We're warriors. Yes. And, 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 and here's the deal. Um, you know, unless, unless you're also serving in the armed forces, you're not a warrior and neither am I. We're lawyers. We're creative problem solvers. That's what we do. Yes, we litigate. Um, but I found in my career, certainly I can be tough when necessary. But 99% of the time, we're creative problem solvers. And and, and that's what, and that connects to all this brain stuff. That's what makes us good lawyers, not, not sucking it up and being tough and not reporting harassment or not addressing mental health. So that's how I think all these, these, these issues intersect. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just to your point about having a thicker skin as a female patent attorney who's been practicing almost 30 years, I can tell you, I've been told that multiple times by white male partners um, over the course of my career. So um, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, and I think that's a really good point. And, and hopefully people are listening and taking that to heart. And I do want to keep on this topic of mental health um, for a little bit longer. And um, particularly, you know, things like depression, anxiety, trauma, they're part of our condition. We all go through them. Um, they're like physical health issues, like high blood pressure, cholesterol. And I always view them, they're not character flaws. But the reality is um, people who have mental health issues, you know, you tend to struggle in private. Um, you're often, those types of people are often very lonely. What do you think our workplaces can do like law firms and other highly stressful environments to help build a culture that puts mental health and physical health on equal footing? And more importantly, tries to do something to eliminate the stigma that surrounds mental health. Yeah. So that's another 
Really big question. Yes. Capital R, capital B, capital G. And and I appreciate it. And because that is like fundamentally what lawyering while human is all about. That's what I want to talk about. That's what this article I was mentioning in Practical Law Company that I just wrote talks about. Um, and again, as with diversity and inclusion, and it comes down in many respects to short term and long term, and the long term is cultural and human leadership. So if you look at, um, I've read a lot about this issue and I've talked to a lot of people about these issues. And first, fundamentally, it comes down to leadership. Uh, the, the fancy consulting companies, um, if you look at reports for you know companies that are navigating this well and doing well and performing well economically, uh, they call it human-centric leadership. Um, I just call it like being a good person. Um, and, you know, I think that there are a lot of people in business who have this preconceived notion that you have to be nasty and transactional and non-relational to make money. Um, and certainly you can make money that way. I'm not saying you can't. We have very prominent examples of people. We see them every day. And right. So when I talk about that, the, the type of leadership that 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 I promote. Um, I, I also get pushback oftentimes from white men saying, well, if this were the case, we wouldn't have any Fortune 500 companies. Um, and that's just silly, right? Um, because I'm not saying that you can't make money with bad leadership. I'm saying it's not sustainable. And you could actually make more money <laughs> um, because you retain people and have a better culture and are more innovative by doing it the right way. So it starts with people. And I think what, what folks have seen is that people, leaders, and this is why authentic leadership is a piece of this, um, why it's a piece, a really important piece of um, diversity, equity, inclusion. We address it in, in the Goodman Project you know, workshops and why it's a really important piece for this overlapping issue of mental health and wellness in the workplace. Um, leaders who are, you know, vulnerable, who share their own experiences um, are, they do better. So, you know, if I have an associate that comes to me and, and a lot of the way I lead, like is informed by my own experiences and not wanting to lead in the way that, you know, people treated me. Exactly. Um, you know, there, there are, there's a broad section of people that are like, it's just like the hazing fraternity mo sorority model. Like it works. No one's yeah, going to change. I've heard like that you, too. Right. When you're, when you're on bottom, like you get dumped on and you got to do all this work and it sucks. Um, and, but then you get to be the boss and you get to treat people yep, like garbage. That's the model. Um, that seems to be a bad model to me. Um, for really doing anything. Um, and I understand that when people are like, well, we're making money. Well, I, I don't think you're making money because of that. I think you're making money almost in spite of that. And I think that, so for example, you know, if, if, if I just fire off emails to associates and say, do this and send me this on this date and where is this thing? Um, and I never stop and say, please, or thank you, or ask them how their day is going or saying, Hey, you know, when can you get me this? What else do you have going on? Uh, and if I don't give feedback or when they mess up, if I if I say, you know, you blew it. Wow, we're screwed. Um, that was a, you know, $100,000 hurt. It's, if I instead say, wow, you know what? Like, we'll deal with it together. We're a team. And guess what? Like when I was an associate, I did this completely ridiculous thing. I made this mistake. We all make it. You're going to be okay. Right? I'm creating better lawyers, better Absolutely. leaders. So I think that's really, really, really fundamentally uh, super duper important. I can't stress that enough. Um, so leadership is really important. Buy-in is really important. There are a lot of people that can talk the talk and we can, you know, you know, there are lots of firms that are doing good work and bringing in directors of wellness, at least the very, very big, big, big firms that can afford it. Um, you know, but, you know, bringing in a speaker, you know, during, during mental health awareness month to talk about, you know, mindfulness or meditation or, or buying some app for everyone, like it can be helpful. Um, but if that's not married to real leadership culture that, that walks the walk, it's just, it's, it's really not going to be very effective in doing anything. Um, and I think you're going to have associates. I mean, they, this is important to that generation. The statistics are unbelievable. Like I don't have them in order to rattle them off, but they're incredibly high. It's like the number one issue that, that, that Gen Z are focused on. So if I don't have a culture, if my if my culture is bad and my leadership is bad, um, and when I say bad in the way I just explained, um, and I say, hey, everyone's got to come to the, the meditation training on Thursday. Uh, and by the way, we got you all this gym membership. Um, and and then I give that same person, you know, you know, crap about, you know, 
getting me something 10 minutes too late and I have to skip the thing to do the work. It's just another obligation. Like it doesn't change anything. Um, so I think we just have to like meet people as human beings. And I mean, treating people like human beings it doesn't seem to be a terribly hard thing to do. Um, but I think we have this sort of culture where we label that as weakness um, and we label vulnerability as weakness rather than just human. Um, you know, when I was at the Good Men Project uh, doing the men's mental health social interest group, uh, we had a group of people that came together. We talked every Wednesday night and I moderated it. And we we said, it's really great to talk about these issues, but we want to put something out into the world. So we made a short video, um, six guys, one was sort of semi-famous. He was like in a show. And then it was like me and some other guys. Um, and uh, But we all sort of said like, you know, little vignette, like here's here's who I am, right? Like I'm a dad, I'm a little league coach, I'm a lawyer, um, and I'm dealing with this issue. Um, and the hashtag we used was, was not weak, just human. Um, and I love that hashtag. And I still use it today because I think people need to hear it. That's great. Well, Mike, um, I want to uh, focus on one last passion of yours, which is sports. Um, I know you're a huge sports fan and, and we've talked about so much on this podcast, but I do want to tie it back to some of the, the themes we've been um, touching on here. So I'm also a huge women's um, sports fan myself. And um, as sad as this is to say, um, it's 2022 and, and women still aren't getting paid the same as men, whether it's in the WNBA, the NWSL, the legal profession, physicians, teachers, whatever. What do you think it's going to take for women to get parity with their male counterparts across all professions? You know, I, I had to throw yet a third big picture question because <laughs> I haven't given you the any real tough ones during this podcast. <laughs> No, it's it's incredibly important thing to talk about. And, you know, like I said, I came into the Goodman Project writing about sports and and I love sports. Um, you know, huge baseball fan. Uh, you know, my daughter's going to Yukon, right? So we're gonna watch a lot of women's basketball. Absolutely. And- the orientation was in the the Gamble Pavilion with all the flags up there, uh, all the banners. Um, so it's really exciting. Um, and and I also I think there's also a lot of overlap, uh, especially when you're talking about issues about the, like diversity, equity, inclusion, and mental health. Um, you know, this past year we had very prominent sports figures talking about mental health, uh, Naomi Osaka, um, and you know Simone, Simone Biles. Biles. Yeah. And. And when that first happened, I said, and I still kind of stand by it, I know that there are men who have been outspoken about mental health issues. Kevin Love, um, you know, DeMar DeRozan, uh, you know, Royce White was one of the first ones for the NBA. Uh, there have been others. There's an Ohio State athlete. So that's definitely happening. But the fact that those two, that, that Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles, like two of the greatest athletes in history um, on a global stage were the first to really use that platform to talk about mental health. When it first happened, I said, I, I don't think it's an accident that they're both women. Um, because I think, um, you know, for, for men, they're like, ah, oh, it's just weak. It's weak. It's like another, it's like another, this, this sort of stereotype of masculinity that that's, makes it even harder to talk about. Um, but, you know, the interesting thing with the Naomi Osaka, um, you know, the, the the tennis player having that dispute with the French Open and not wanting to talk to reporters because she suffers from anxiety. Um, what's really interesting is you get this pushback. Like, you know, if you read what she's saying, you're very hopeful and you're like, wow, this is really great. Um, and if you read the comments and, you know, I know, like, don't read the comments. Um, but if you read the comments, right, you see a lot of a lot of guys sitting on their couch, like not feeling great about maybe the fact that they don't get to get to play a sport for a living. Uh, and, you know, they're saying, well, you know, she's just not tough. And if she can't hack it, then maybe she shouldn't do it. Um, and, and and she's making a lot of money. I'm only making, you know, $50,000. She's getting paid to play a game. And, and I think you get a lot of the same pushback, like in the law, actually. You get a certain amount of people that say, well, you know, they chose this path and they knew it was going to be hard and they, they're well compensated. So, you know, suck it up. And, you know, my response to that comment about Naomi Osaka is like, you know, she's probably one of the best three people in the world at what she does. Um, so is it really a good solution to be like, yeah, let's urge those people not to do that thing? Uh, or can we just, you know, sort of make it better so those people want to do those things? And so and so so I think these issues intersect in terms of like, you know, the the, the, pay, the pay gap. I think there's a huge issue with, with women's. Let's start start with sports, but women's sports. And and uh, I edited an article recently by 
uh, Professor Dave Barry, who's an economist, but also writes about sports. And it's a really tremendous article. It's on the Good Men Project. Um, and it started because it started from a conversation that, my, that I had with my son a couple years ago in high school. He was in a he was in a group chat. He, so he plays he's played baseball and ultimate frisbee and he's had some other friends who play tennis and they're in a chat with the girls right the high school the, the senior girls and they're all like you know they play softball and swim and they're actually captains right um and they're in the chat and they're you know being tough and as you know, high school people will and 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 they're saying yeah well we're better athletes than you are and they're like well actually like we're captains like you guys aren't anything you're just yeah. players and they were like yeah but you're girls yeah and and so i went to dave barry and i said this conversation I have with my son, like, how do we get through to him? Like, what's the deal? You know, he's like, I don't watch WNBA because it's not as athletic. They I don't like it. They can't dunk is what right, you hear. Dunk. Yeah. Right. So, so, so that was the genesis of the article that we kind of wrote together. And Dave did a lot of the heavy lifting. I just sort of framed the question, right. I was like, please answer this question. Um, and, and he talks a lot about, um, the, the media picture, right. The fact that like everyone in broadcasting, you know, I'm exaggerating, but largely men, Right. Yes. And men watch men and support men and invest in men. Uh, and I know people might push back and say, oh, you're making everything about identity and blah, blah, blah. But I think what's really compelling is that, you know, if you ask someone who the best boxer is, pe people will naturally say, well, like in his weight class, like Julio Cesar Chavez is great. And no one's going to say like, well, he should fight Mike Tyson. Then we'll see who's best. <laughs> right? People understand that you're playing against the competition. And that's what makes the sport great. Dave also points out that, you know, the most watched television football game was the college championship game. Right. Not but that if one of those teams, if like Alabama played against, you know, the worst team in the NFL. Right. Like the Jacksonville Jaguars. Nobody's going to watch. Jaguars would kill them. Yeah. And no one would watch. It's about competition. But the second you say, well, what about women? Like, like isn't. Isn't Venus Williams the best athlete ever? And they're like, oh, no, but she's a girl because, you know, if she if she had to play, you know, a boy, a man like, you know, she'd lose. But that's really like that's not the question we ask in any other area until we get to that. So so I think this is another issue where there's institutional issues. Right. Men's leagues had a head start. They're more covered in the media. Right. ESPN six is throwing is showing you bowling instead of like a women's basketball. Game. Exactly. Um, yep. And that makes a difference. Um, and, you know, to me, like, especially when we have a situation like the U.S. women's uh, national soccer team where they're dominating the world. Right. That's like I besides UConn women's basketball. I can't think of another more you know dominant difference between like men and women and their compensation levels, you know, don't reflect it. And they had a very public lawsuit about that um but so so i mean it's it's a question we could we could spend like a whole podcast on but i think it's another institutional issue it's a question we have to be loud about it's a question that we have to address short term and long term and and i think we have to push back on like you're making this all about identity like you know you see it with like the supreme court justices right you know they're like well why are we talking about that we have a black and woman justice why is that a requirement well if you look at the picture like you know, white and male seems to be a requirement for like much of our nation's history. We just don't talk about it because that seems to be the default. So I think like just pushing these conversations and I'm not saying having them in an aggressive way where you're fighting with people, but I think, you know, pushing them not only privately and I'm not saying, you know, going onto Twitter and getting into fights with people <laughs> like my kids will say I used to do, but, you know, having them productively. And I think like having them at work like where, where the rubber meets the road, I think it's important. Um, so so I think, you know, maybe a little bit of a, of a cop out in light of time. But uh, I, I think those are kind of the components. Yeah, I agree. I, I could go on for an hour talking about uh, women's sports and the pay disparity and WNBA athletes having to go to Russia and other places to supplement their income. But we'll, we'll save that for another podcast. So that's good. Mike, I wanted to close the podcast by thanking you for all the ways you're trying to impact and improve our world and society, particularly the legal profession. With respect to the impact that you're trying to have, if you could have any three wishes granted, what would those be? Oh, Sorry, I got to wow. keep the hard questions coming. And I can't wish for more wishes. No, that, that was that's when cheating. I to wish when I was 10, that's cheating. Yeah. Uh, so three wishes. Um, I mean, I think just to have the opportunity to do work that aligns with my values. I think uh, for, uh, you know, for, for good health for me and my family. And I think the third one would be for the world to keep serving me up good adventures uh, and, and and just have the opportunity to, to continue to explore. Well, those are three great wishes. I hope you 
get the chance to realize them and good luck on that front. Thank you so much. Well, Mike, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. This has been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed having you on the podcast. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Um, so you can find me at LinkedIn on LinkedIn, Mike Kasdan. Uh, law firm wise, you can find me at Wigan and Dana. Uh, I'm on our webpage, and uh, I'm also probably spend too much time on social media. So uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at Michael Kasdan. Um, you can find me on Instagram uh, at M Kasdan. Um, I also have socials for lawyering while human. Um, so if you want to talk about that more, you can email me um, at uh, the address is Mike at lawyeringwhilehuman.com. Uh, uh, I'm also sharing content on Twitter uh, at uh, law underscore while underscore human uh, or on Instagram for lawyeringwhilehuman uh, at zen.mayhem. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Mike. This has been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you so much. Great to see you and great to talk. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups. Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.